Are you a believer in good? Do you love it when the good guy wins in the end? And Charity Matters is just a place for you where modern day heroes overcome incredible obstacles to save the day with their amazing work. Welcome to season five of the Charity Matters podcast. I'm Heidi Johnson, nonprofit founder, lifelong helper, and your host. I've been interviewing the helpers for over a decade with my blog, and I'm so excited to finally be sharing these inspiring conversations on our podcast. Join me as we learn the challenges and stories of innovators, entrepreneurs, and modern day heroes who set out to solve the problems of humanity. Did you know that thousands of unaccompanied minors are left at our borders each year? Today's guest is no stranger to the sad fact. Rachel Rudder is the founder of Project Libertad, and she and her team are doing incredible work to support these children. And I'm so excited to share her amazing journey and our really inspirational conversation. You're not gonna wanna miss it. We are so excited to have Rachel Rudder here today of Project Libertad sharing with us her amazing work that she's doing to help youth and immigrant families. And I am so happy that you're here. So thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We're really excited um, for this conversation. So before we get started, why don't you tell all of us and everyone listening a little bit about what Project Libertad is and what you guys do? Sure. So we are a nonprofit organization serving newcomer immigrant youth. Uh, so we're working with kids who have recently arrived in the U.S. and their families. Um, we are primarily working with unaccompanied minors from Central America, Mexico, um, and we also work with a lot of families from Brazil. Um, and we are serving primarily the counties outside of Philadelphia, where there are fewer services. Um, and we try to provide as holistic services as we can. Um, so we're providing legal services, so helping kids with their immigration process, but also trying to address the other needs that they have. Um, for example, we have kids who struggle with housing insecurity, food insecurity, they need mental health support, all those sorts of things. So we're trying to not only meet their, their need for immigration status and help them with that process, but also all these other challenges that they face as they're adjusting to being here in the U.S. That is amazing. And um, <clears throat> I have to say, I have a nun aunt that worked at the border. I know oh, everyone wow. needs a little Catholic nun who worked at the border um, prior to 2016. And uh, and she was doing this work um, as part of a legal uh, outreach that her order has and and really enlightened me to kind of some of the struggles that that families are going through um, that are coming to this country and really enlighten me more to anything. I never realized how many unaccompanied children come through every year. And this was in, again, she was, you know, doing this um, prior to Trump being president and there was a big onslaught. So not even with what we're seeing at the border today. Um, but before we go into that whole, down that whole rabbit hole, I want to just get a little sense of your background because you just don't wake up and decide to be a nonprofit founder. There's a whole series of things that happen on our journeys that put this work in our paths. Um, my aunt's was, you know, a different calling, but still a calling. And I do think the work that we do as nonprofit founders is a calling. Um, but tell us me a little bit, like, did you grow up in a philanthropic family? Were you, was your family always doing service? Like, ha give me a little bit of the background that kind of led a little bit that led before you started this. Sure. So I, 
I grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Um, so maybe two hours outside Philly for people who aren't familiar, Amish country. Um, and my family was always very, um, like generosity was important, especially to my mom. So we were always kind of not necessarily officially doing volunteer work, but like we were always doing things for people, whether it was our family or in my school or community who needed things. Like I remember like many times bringing groceries to families who needed groceries or one year there was a, a girl in my class who their family was struggling and we brought them like Christmas presents and my mom got them a Christmas tree. And just like, she's always doing that kind of stuff like throughout my childhood. Um, so I think that definitely like impressed upon me the importance of, of supporting other people in the community. Um, so then after growing up in Lancaster, um, I went to Gettysburg College, um, which was where I really fell in love with working with immigrant kids um, through a community center that I worked at there. Um, and that was really like the starting point for me of wanting to work with this population. Um, and so that was really like a game changer for me and kind of thinking about what I wanted to do. Like and then forward. obviously you went and you went, well, people don't know, but you went to law school, you became an attorney <laughs> and you probably thought you were going down. Maybe you, did you have a goal when you were going to law school that you, did you know that you wanted to support this community or did you just think you're going to law school and you're going to be a lawyer and you're going to maybe just volunteer and, you know, make a lot of money and then help on the sides or help financially? What were your kind of I your thoughts? I definitely knew I was going to do public interest law. So working in the nonprofit sector, I don't think I knew specifically that I was going to do immigration law because I, it's kind of embarrassing in hindsight, but I feel like I didn't have a good plan when I went to law school. <laughs> like, I kind of was like, I don't know what to do with my life. Like, I guess I'll go to law school, um, which like, you know, is the downfall of like a lot of people, but I'm really fortunate that um, like in hindsight, I can see the thread from like working with youth in college to being a Peace Corps volunteer in Costa Rica to coming back. And then during law school, I interned um, at another awesome nonprofit, Highest Pennsylvania, which is based in Philly, and they do um, legal services and refugee resettlement um, for immigrants and refugees. And so I was lucky enough to intern there. And that was kind of um, how I you know, became interested in immigration law specifically and learned that this was like a field that I could work in and kind of combine my interests. Um, so I can definitely see the thread in hindsight, but it would, I wouldn't say that I like knew in advance. And I think I just got lucky in some ways that <laughs> like connected how they have. Well, when you look back, you can, you can see like following the breadcrumbs that one thing led, you know, led right. you down the other, but when you're going through it, you don't, it does, it isn't <laughs> as clear as to where you're going. You're just exactly. kind of figuring your way out as you go. Um, so in 2015, you guys started. So what happened when you said, okay, and, and I can say in all the people I've interviewed, which is hundreds of nonprofit founders in the last 12 years, every, most 99% of them can say, here was the moment, or here was the series of two or three, three things that just said, this is it. I, I, I have to do something, you know, enough. So what was that? What was that moment for you when you're like, okay, I'm an attorney, I'm helping, I'm volunteering, I'm doing this law that's really supportive of this community that I care about. But but starting a business that helps people is probably one of the hardest things that most of us will ever do in our lives. I mean, as far as being nonprofit founders, it's incredibly difficult work. So when you decide you want to do something, something's happened that's really lit a fire in you. So So share with us a little bit of that. 
So it's definitely a process for me. So when I first started kind of like the paperwork of all of this that's involved in starting an organization, I was still in law school and actually had sort of a different idea for what I wanted to do than like what we're doing now. Um, I was focused more on like human trafficking and that was kind of my area of interest at the time. Um, but even from when I was in college, I had this idea in my head that like, I want to start a nonprofit someday. Um, but I didn't, you know, have it like super fleshed out. And I was probably like very naive about how hard it would be and how <laughs> difficult it is to get funding and things like that back when I was like 20 or whatever saying that. Um, so I started all of the paperwork and like incorporating in 501c3 status and all of that, like in law school. And then um, at the same time was working at highest after I graduated and took the bar and everything. Um, and so I was working with all these clients there where they had, you know, their legal need, like they needed asylum or they needed to apply for whatever immigration status. Right. Um, but then they always, like I said, have all these other needs. Like they have, you know, they don't have a safe place to live. They have family issues, they have trauma, they need food, like, you know, any number of different issues right. that they have. Um, and I just felt like we, something I always talked about with my coworkers is like, I wish we had a social worker that we could like partner with and like, kind of, you know, have like a wraparound approach where we're, you know, meeting all the needs, not just this legal need. And we just didn't have the resources there. So that's right. sort of where the idea came from to, um, to create an organization that does try to do all those different things in like one stop shop. Um, and so that's where it came from. And I feel like we actually, like, sometimes it feels surreal, but we are kind you know, doing that now. Like we had just hired a case manager to connect kids to resources in the community and social services in the fall. I'm obviously doing the legal part and we hope to continue like replicating that and, and growing that in, you know, new areas, new counties. So, um, that's sort of where it all started though, is like seeing all those different cases where I just felt like I, I was being a social worker, even though I'm not a social worker because right. <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting that you say human trafficking. I interviewed, um, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting her name, but she was an attorney and she started, um, and she was just, her firm was doing pro bono work um, to help victims of human trafficking, to help the legal side of it. And she ended up starting a nonprofit um, because she was like, I can't, I can't watch this anymore. And also I think we realized, I think one of the hardest things um, nonprofit founders go through is when we, there's a moment when you realize you can't, help everybody and you can't do everything and you can't take care of everything. I mean, just think about what one child needs is coming to you. The list of what they need is enormous from, as you said, housing, food, mental health services. I mean, on and on legal services, immigration services. I mean, on and on and on. And you're multiplying that times all those people, children that you're serving and their families. So um, when we have the backs of humanity kind of on us. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. And I think it's one of the hardest things for us to realize we can't, we can't help everybody. But speaking of challenges, you know, what were some of the, the biggest challenges when you're starting? Like what were some of your kind of on, and, and by the way, no one knows what they're getting into when they start this. All of us, you know, everyone just thinks, oh, I'm just going to help. If I just do this, I'll help a couple people. And then, you know, you're helping more people and then you're helping more people and right. And it just, that's just kind of how it goes, right? So what were some of the challenges early on? So one of the biggest things I remember getting really frustrated with was like applying for different grants and just, it's really hard to get your foot in the door as like a new nonprofit um, just because nobody wants to take a chance on you and you're tiny and they want to see that you have money before they give you money, but right. you can't show them that unless anyone, unless someone gives you money. And it's just kind of like a chicken and egg problem. Um, 
So that was really frustrating. And I feel like over time, I, you know, we took classes on grant writing and things like that. And I just practiced and, you know, got better over time. And eventually, actually, thanks to Hyas, um, we did a grant in partnership with them, which was like our first ever grant that we got. Um, and I think like having them partner with us as like a more established organization um, and just having being able to say like this other foundation gave us a grant um, went right. really far. So just having to be patient and like learn how to, you know, how to, how to talk about your mission in a way that people want to fund it. (laughs) Um, because that's really important. It's like like writing like a, like a thesis in college, right? You have to like structure it the right way so that people want to support it. Um, which can feel really frustrating when you're just trying to do like the on the ground work and you know, what's important, why it's important, but that was a big learning curve for us. I think it's so interesting too, um, to your point that people who have businesses think, well, you know, it was really hard. Like I had to get, you know, venture funding and I had to do a pitch and I had to like, you know, tell them in two minutes why I deserve to get funding and this and that. Well, as nonprofit founders, and we do that every day trying to get donors. That's that's our daily job. It's not something that we do in like a special like venture capital, you know, round. Like, <laughs> we do this all the time. Our grants are our venture capital, our big funders, right? And 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 our our constant usually, and for a lot of us. But that individual donor, it's a daily, it's a daily pitch. It's a daily communication problem and strategizing and mm-hmm. selling our mission and our stories because we rely on the kindness of others to fund our organization. And it's it's not always the easiest business model. Just saying. Not totally. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's not always easy as well. So speaking about how hard it can be doing this work, because I really do think it is it is the hardest job. Um, and I'm a mother and I honestly think being a nonprofit founder is a little harder than even being a mom. Just saying. Um <laughs> It's so, it's just, it, there's just so much and we wear so many hats and we're pulled in so many directions. And so talk to me about when you are overwhelmed and you have, you know, your own laundry, your own groceries, your own life. And then you have all these other lives and families and children that you feel responsible for that you're caring for in a way your organization's caring for how, what fuels you to keep you know, going those days that I kind of say the bucket is heavy. What, what fuels you to keep going? Yeah, that can be really hard, but like the, the most important thing for me has always been like the relationship that I have with the kids that we work with and those connections. Um, so that's definitely like the biggest motivator for me. Um, and I also have like a very supportive family and husband. I have friends who work in this like industry as well. So I feel like I have not only my team at Project Lieber Thad, but also just like my colleagues from other organizations and things who are always supportive and we can always like work together to solve problems and things. So it can definitely be challenging, but I feel like I have a good support system. Um, and just like working directly with the kids is kind of what gives me energy. So um, usually that's what I'll try to focus on if it's, if you need to push through, um, thinking about the kids and, and all of, and that connection that we get to have with them. Yeah. I think, I mean, if that's, that's kind of like our payday, right? It's how we, um, it's how we get filled back up. It's why we're, what's why we're here. It's for the people that we're helping. And the joy that we get is from doing, having those, those relationships. And to me, like 
that's the beauty. We make, we don't do this to make money. That's not really why we get into this, this line of work. And you're an attorney of all people. So you really took one for the team because <laughs> my husband says that all the time. <laughs> I, I just keep telling my husband, I'm on the A train to heaven. Stick with me. I'm going to, it's going to, it's going to pay off in the, in the long run. This is a long-term investment. But so talk to me, we talked a little about grant writing and, um, and, in grant writing, they also want to know your impact, right? They also want to know what have you done and who have you helped and how many people. And and I think that sometimes measuring what we do when you're providing a child with food, mental health services, a place to live, um, and immigration, you know, legal services that are going to change the trajectory of their life forever. There's no measuring that impact, and and you know our grants are asking for us in this. Well, what's your measurement or donors? Well, how many people have you helped, or what have you done? What would you um, what would you say your impact is? And it doesn't have to be. It can be numbers, a story. It it doesn't have to be the traditional grant impact. But I think that there's so many things that we do that don't get. Um, we don't get credit for, or we get credit and really, we take something beautiful and make it so sterile in, in trying to present our work, right? Yeah, I agree that a lot of what we do is really hard to, to quantify. And I think that's a larger conversation about like how funding is structured for nonprofits and the sort of like power that funders wield and the kind of hoops they make nonprofits jump through when we're trying to do to provide direct services but that's that's kind of a different right. um soapbox to get on but yes. yes so in terms of our impact so number wise we served over a thousand people last year um over a wow. thousand individuals um but in terms of like impact the times I think when I feel like the most impactful are so for example this week I had a student that I work with come to me and shared some things that were going on in her family and were able to provide support with that. And then there was, as I mentioned, like food insecurity in the household. So we went grocery shopping. Um, and so it does like, it's not always, you know, some complicated, like this is our metric and how we're measuring it. Like this right. kid said, I need food. So we went to the store and we got food and like, that was that. And um, my colleagues and I do stuff like that all the time. And I think those are definitely the moments for me that are like the most rewarding when you can just like help somebody in such a concrete, like immediate way. Um, and so I love that we have the ability to do that. Um, but I think sometimes those kind of moments where it like don't get necessarily captured in like the numbers you put in a grant report or something right. like that. And sometimes right. it also feels like selling their stories or like exploiting their stories a little bit when they want anecdotes, which is like always yeah. a, a tricky like calculation. I, I think that's such a fine line. I um the nonprofit that I um, co-founded was uh, provided chaplains of all faiths at Children's Hospital. And so we had some really harrowing stories, just like I'm sure you do and most nonprofits do about um, sick kids. And it's such a razor thin line that we walk that's an impossible, impossible position to share the power of your work and not feel that you're somehow exploiting the people that you're serving, even though you're not using their name, even though you're not necessarily using their picture. It's, it's, it's feels, it just, it's, it's impossible, but you can't have one without the other. And, and they, and you, you have to have the story to have the funds to help the person with the story. I mean, it's just the way, it's just the way it is. And it's, but it is, I think, such a challenging thing. So, 
you're an entrepreneur, you've started a business and you can't start a business without having a dream. So what's the big dream for Project Libertad? What's the, what's the big dream? I think like I have kind of two thoughts about that. One is, like I said, to continue like expanding and replicating what we're doing um, now in our current locations um, with having the combination of lawyers and social workers and sort of reproducing that in new counties as we grow. Um, and then the other thing I would love to do that's feels like a pipe dream right now, but as we grow, it's starting to feel like more realistic is to have some sort of shelter um for youth who are like 18 to early 20s um because something that we've run into a lot is um youth who have housing insecurity um and they don't you know they don't have anywhere to go because the you know foster care system of course doesn't help them once they're 18, I mean right. to be honest I've had a lot of children who I feel like the foster care system hasn't helped even when they are minors and would be eligible yeah. but again that's a different rant um, I've interviewed a bunch of foster care organizations as well so yeah that, that's <laughs> yeah I'm wow. sure you but yeah so we have kids who fall into this weird gap where like technically they're legally adults but like I know personally I wasn't self-sufficient when I was 18 and even now I feel like I need my parents so like name name one 18 year old who's ever been self-sufficient at 18 i mean i just can't you know i mean our youngest son is getting ready to graduate college he's just turned 22 last week and um oh my gosh i can't even imagine i think about these kids coming out of the foster care situation or the children that you're serving but it's always that population and especially in a lot in a lot of cases it's boys like girls are better at somehow asking for help a little bit and our, but the boys our youth homeless you know situation it's that that window of like 18 to 25 like they're they're just not completely developed yet and they still need so much support and help so exactly. much i think almost more than ever because they're expected to just mm -hmm. fly and and they're barely able to like run they they can't even jump right they're just they're right, right there yeah, it's, it seems like a very arbitrary line that we draw at 18 because we know like medically someone's brain isn't even developed fully until they're so like 25. 25 yeah, so, for boys, 25 um, girls earlier. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we run into cases like that a lot where kids don't have anywhere to go. There are really limited options currently for them. Um, and usually they're full and have long wait lists or or you have to be like truly on the street and like go present yourself. There's not a lot of options for people who are like, in a bad situation and need somewhere to go or like technically have a room, but they're like not being treated well. So like you have to either be, it's like this very black or white thing. Um, so one thing we would really, or I would love to do eventually is to have some sort of space for kids like that. Um, Cause what we end up doing now generally is either trying to get them into one of these systems that's like already overloaded and doesn't have room for them. And honestly, they aren't always, you know, the best environment. Um, right. Or we'll end up trying, trying, excuse me, trying to match them with like families in the community, like whether it's through a church connection or something like that, that wants to sort of like unofficially foster them. But then that can get dicey with like liability and all those sorts of things you have to think about. So um, that would be like another dream that I would have for the future. I think I love that. I love that. I, I think there's definitely um, there's definitely something there because boy, is there a need. And and we keep seeing our youth homelessness rise because of that. And, it, and when you put youth on the streets because they have nowhere else to go and they're either, and they're put on streets with people that are potentially have addiction issues or mental health issues, you're creating a youth that's going to either have an addiction issue or a mental health issue. 
and you're not necessarily giving them um, a support system or people that are going to help show them the path out. So uh, it's really about trying to launch them and catch them when you can and give them the right path. So I I love that. So I have to just take a, a guess at this journey. I mean, since 2015, you guys are you know, a couple of years from being 10 years old, you've been on this path for a while and you've been building your organization. What, what life lessons have you learned from this? I, 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 I would think you probably learn them every day, but what are some of the, the big lessons you've learned in your, in your journey doing this work? I think one thing is just like the importance of these relationships with the kids. Um, I feel like that's something because there there are kids that I have kept in touch with, like since I was in college working at the youth center that I mentioned that are now like clients of Project Libertad for help with their legal case and things like that. So I think just the like value in those like long term relationships is so, so important and like sustaining for me. Um, I've definitely been learning to delegate more um, now that we have more staff. Um, it's always like hard for me to kind of let go of things like this is my baby. But like I also realize when I'm feeling burned out or when I'm feeling like I can't kind of stay on top of everything. So like having a good team that you can trust and and trust to do things so that you you know aren't trying to do everything as one person um, is really important. Um, I think I'm learning to like relax a little more that a lot of things work themselves out. If you, if you wait long enough, <laughs> or just like take a deep breath. Um, cause I think I would definitely have the inclination to kind of like have a lot of anxiety about things if something's, you know, not going according to plan or whatever. So that's right. something I'm always working on. Um, well, I think that, but I think that that's so important because I do think that, um, so much of what you said, we end up in, um, well, a lot of us seem to be kind of type A, uh, you know, we kind of <laughs> seem to be hardwired that way, but we're managing so many different things every day and it's, and we're taking care of people at the end of the day, we're taking care of people. And so you, it's not like, oh, I didn't, you know, make this many pencils today. It's, I have a child that doesn't have food, you know, I mean, this is not something and you just think, I'll just do it. I'll just do it rather than handing it off to somebody. It's just easier. I'll just do it. But there's a point where you're like, oh my God, I'm running on empty. Yeah, I can't do it all. And, and I think it happens to a lot of us. And so learning to let some things go, learning things can wait, learning to hand it off um, are not easy lessons, but they're so important for, cause it's a marathon. It's not a sprint for sure. <laughs> Right. These you're gonna keep getting, you know, more kids and families every year. And mm -hmm. uh and it's just pacing yourselves. And it's it's hard when you're kind of a, a helper, you just want to keep helping. And then there's a moment you're like, oh my God, I had to help myself. And that was really hard. Yeah. Absolutely. That's definitely one of them. Just prioritize. So do you think he, sorry, go Oh, go ahead. Go I ahead. Say just like kind of prioritize like, like learning to prioritize what's actually urgent and like what can, can right. And I, and I do think that that is, it's just something that comes with time, but I do think it is a hard, it's a hard <laughs> lesson. And I think it's something we all deal with every day. We struggle with like, mm -hmm. can we, can we just put that off? I don't know. Can I, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard. So do you think you've changed at all in all of this? Do you think you're different than you were eight years ago? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely think I'm different. And how so? <laughs> how so? 
Oh, just um, like I, said, I think when I started this out, I was a little bit naive about like how difficult it might be to get funds and things like that. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, I've learned a lot there. Um, I just think I have like more confidence in myself and like my knowledge as an attorney now that I have more years of experience and things like that. And I feel like we've really developed like our niche kind of where we are sort of like the locally the experts in you know working with this population and we you know started to get more like inquiries from schools and we get referrals from our partner schools all the time so I think just like part of it is kind of seeing that us as like a real organization because I think it took me a long time to kind of see this as like a real thing not just like my <laughs> little project um and I think that just came with like time and other people seeing it that way and I, I love that. Well, I think when we start it, we don't, we just start, we just jump in the deep end of the pool, right? We just, we don't, we just figure it out. There's, there's not really manual, although someone has told me there is nonprofit founders for dummies. I didn't know it existed when <laughs> I did it. Um, and most of I've talked to have not read it, but uh, we all just figure it out. Right. And we don't know we don't know what we're doing, but also as we go along, we start thinking we can help more people. And we are, in some cases, our own um, worst enemies, right? Our best and worst, because we push ourselves and set new goals and stretch ourselves. And then we meet them and then we stretch them again. And then we meet them and we stretch them again. So it's great, but it can be um, it can be a lot. So I love that you didn't think it was, you know, going to be real. And, uh, and here you are, and it's very real. A thousand people uh, a year is very, very real and, and very remarkable. So you should be incredibly impressed. And you are way, you are very young. So you have a long, um, you have a long, long um, road ahead of you with only, I'm sure, amazing and beautiful things. So I'm just so grateful for you sharing your story. Tell us how we can support you, volunteer, follow you on social media. How can we get involved, Project Libertad? What can we, where can we find you? So our website is um, Project Libertad, that's L-I-B-E-R-T-A-D dot org. Um, we have a lot of volunteer opportunities, um, both in person and remote for people um, who are not able to go in person. Um, so I definitely encourage you to check out our volunteer page on our website um, and all the information you need is there. Um, but a lot of people find it just really rewarding because you get a lot of direct interaction with our clients um, and just really get to be kind of on the ground participating, which people love. Um, we always love donations, <laughs> which Yay. you can also do through our website. <laughs> um, Good. And yeah, we also have opportunities like for people who aren't as interested in maybe working directly with clients. Um, we had definitely have opportunities to either be a board member or be on one of our board committees if you're more interested in providing like that type of support from behind the scenes. Um, and just uh I think helping to kind of dispel some of these myths that get repeated about immigration over and over um, and making sure you're like consuming accurate information and putting out accurate information is really important because one of the challenges that we face a lot um, when immigration gets really politicized is just these kind of false narratives that keep repeating, um, even though they're not true. So that's something that I think everyone can do is just kind of double, you know, double check before you share, make sure what you're sharing is a real source and kind of really try not to keep perpetuating those myths that hurt the kids that we work with. Yeah. And, and when you think about a child that is coming to this country and I know when my aunt was in San Diego, I, I want to say that they had 48 um, 
countries that were coming across. Um, she was dealing with children that were so young that were, you know, sent sent here without, maybe with an older sibling or maybe without. And um, and when you just think about a child coming alone and and what they have to navigate, it, it's it's kind of unfathomable to imagine. I mean, no one in the United States, no one probably listening could even fathom sending their six-year-old away, giving them up essentially to a foreign country and saying, go, go live your best life. Bye bye. You know, I'm sure it's the most selfless act a parent um, can do what they, what they're thinking, but the support that we need to help these kids is, is enormous. So thank you so much for a, what you're doing and B, for sharing your story. And I hope everybody listening is visiting projectlibertad.org and, um, and learning more about Rachel's beautiful work. So thank you, Rachel, so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Charity Matters podcast. I really enjoyed talking to our guest, Rachel Rutter, about what it takes to start a business that truly changes people's lives. I think Rachel's comments about letting things go and learning to relax was so inspiring and true. To learn more about these modern day heroes and entrepreneurs, reach out to us at charity-matters.com or connect with us on Instagram at Charity Matters. If you enjoyed our conversation, we would love it if you shared it with your family and friends. And please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. But more than that, thank you for caring, for believing in goodness, and for being a part of our movement. You are exactly what the world needs more of. Remember that together we can make a difference. One small act of kindness at a time. Charity matters. See you next time.